Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Katie. Welcome to 2023. We're here. Yay! We made it. (laughs) Tried to put some excitement into my voice. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Not just exhaustion. (laughs) Yeah. It is really good to see you and to be back recording after the holidays and the first few weeks of January. And this is actually our seventh year recording. I can't believe us. That makes us a, like, geriatric podcast. Oh, (laughs) can we call it something else? (laughs) OG? Maybe we're just an OG podcast. There you go. Uh, maybe I'm thinking about it, too, because I'm about to turn 40 in a few months, Aww. which Aww. I'm, I'm excited about. Honestly, I'm I'm really, really looking forward to turning 40 Yeah, because I have fewer you-know-whats to give. And I'm like, can we start swearing on this podcast? I don't know. Maybe a topic for future conversation because it just feels like that would be a good time to say it. But anyway, <laughs> uh, um, I'm just like, I'm out of them. And with that, I feel like I'm really ready to tackle some more taboo subjects on the podcast this year. How about you? Yes, bring it. I love it. I guess abortion is taboo, but not really in our world, so Yeah, that's that's true. So, what do we want to start with? Well, we're going to start I think on the tamer side of taboo, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. because we are going to talk about sex, but we're going to specifically talk about sexuality education. And we're going to start small because, well, not small, we're going to start with something a little bit easier for us to talk about because, honestly, this is not a topic that we've really broached in depth before, sex or sexuality really at all. And while we know from the last few years that we can't really predict the future, I would venture to guess that this won't be our last episode about sexuality that we record this year. Yeah, I was really surprised to look back through our archives and find out that the closest we've come to talking about sex on the podcast were some very early episodes that we did on dating and marriage and singleness and things like that. And sex was kind of briefly touched on, but those were really more about relationships and partnering and like how the church and culture, you know, pushes us into partnerships and things like that. And we've talked about gender identity. I'm thinking about when you interviewed Dr. Robin Henderson Espinosa, Katie. That was such a good episode. It was. And now he is Dr. Roberto Che Espinosa. That just oh, happened. So it shows I, you how much changes, oh my goodness, in seven years. Yes. So many changes in our lives and other people's lives. Yeah. Did he get married too? Yes. Yes. Over oh, July. That's awesome. July 4th, reclaiming July 4th. <laughs> Something oh, good. Oh, <laughs> I love that so much. Yeah. Well, I encourage our listeners to go back and listen to those episodes in the archives because they were really good. I would also say they might be interesting to listen to compare how we talked about this stuff seven years ago versus how we're going to talk about oh it my today. Gosh. Yes. Talk about evolution. I know. And that's something that I'm really holding in my mind this year as we record 2023, how much I've changed, how much we've changed, especially our views and how they've evolved over the years since we started this in 2017. I feel like an entirely different person. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think I've been multiple different people in that time period. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And I mean... Like you said about having fewer 
cares to give <laughs> as you're approaching 40, I also feel a lot less restrained when it comes to talking about these taboo topics. Seven years ago, I mean, if I'm honest with myself, I was straight up scared to talk about this stuff. I was really new to understanding the complexity and the nuances of things like gender and sexuality and sexual orientation and even reproductive rights. Mm. And I was also worried about, you know, what people would think. Would I say something that crossed a line? Would I reveal too much of myself? Would I say something wrong? And Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm actually not worried about that stuff today as much. And I'm actually excited to dig into this. And it feels like the only way that we can make these things less scary and less taboo is to just dive in and talk about it. Mm -hmm. So are we ready? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So today we're going to talk about what we learned about sexuality, growing up at church, at school, how we're reteaching ourselves about sex, what conversations we're having with our kids, what we hope for them, and honestly for ourselves and for anyone else that's listening to this too. And this probably goes without saying, but just a content note – We will be talking, frankly, about sex and body parts, sexual health. Really, nothing is off limits today. So just know that going in. Plan accordingly. Maybe wear headphones, you know. (laughs) It's like our own little mini sexuality education episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, let's start with maybe the bad and the ugly parts of this. I was thinking as I was planning for this one, if we could play a really horrifying game called Church or School. Where oh, I will, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> I'll share things I was taught about sex, and you get to guess whether you think I heard it at church or at school. Okay, Ready? I'm down. Yes. Okay. Masturbation is the most selfish thing you can do. Oh, that feels like church. You are correct. I heard this in college, actually. Oh. Yes. In, oh, At a church-related Lord. function in college. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Okay. I'm one for one. (laughs) Condoms are basically balloons, and balloons lose air. So why would a condom protect you from AIDS? A tiny virus can go right through a condom. Church or school? No. If you heard that at school, I'm going to be so sad. I did hear it at school. No. My science teacher in sixth grade (gasps) told me this. Oh, that's so, 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 so wrong and horrible. Okay. Okay, last one. Uh, You're doing well, though, okay. even though in this horrifying game. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm, I'm winning it. You're winning. <laughs> having Okay, oh, having okay. sex with someone means you bond with them forever. If you have sex with someone you're not married to, you will be damaged because you will have lost part of yourself. Church or school? That feels like church. This is a trick question because I heard it at both places. <laughs> <laughs> what's my prize abstinence <laughs> yeah i went to a private school that was not officially but most definitely religious if you have heard of schools uh-huh. like this and then mm-hmm. our high school had the executive director of the local crisis pregnancy center provide sexuality education to us yeah oh and God. If, yeah if you don't know what that means crisis pregnancy centers are fake clinics that are explicitly created to talk people out of having abortions. And they use lies and deception, and they're usually backed by conservative Christian organizations. So the same guy who ran the Crisis Pregnancy Center also spoke to my church youth group about sex. So I just got, like, a lot of horrible, unscientific lies about pretty much 
everything having to do with sex from from pretty much every source that I should have been able to rely on. Oh, that's tragic. Oh, yep. gosh. Horrifying game. Okay. Not really a game. <laughs> yes. Okay, so I have some things that I heard. Uh, you can guess where they came from, but I, these were not just church and school. <laughs> So I don't know if it says if it's fair, but all right. So here's the first one. And early listeners of our show might know where this one comes from. Girls who dress provocatively are asking to be objectified and sexually assaulted. Where did I hear that one? Everywhere. Culture. <laughs> Everywhere. Culture. I heard that one at school from the power team. The power team. That tore phone books for Jesus. And, <laughs> and then they got up and proselytized. And one of the things that they said was, girls, if you don't dress modestly, you're asking for it. And it was just, it was horrifying. Okay. Oh, my gosh. And we'll destroy you just like we destroyed this phone book? I don't understand. <laughs> so violent. It was so violent. So horrible. Um, okay, this one comes deep from the, like, memory archives <laughs> when I was thinking about this episode. Tampons are only for women who've had sex because if you're still a virgin, your vagina should be too tight for tampons. Where do you think I heard that one? Oh, my gosh. This seems like something that you would talk about, like, in the bathroom at school. Honestly, okay, yes. So that is where I heard it. <laughs> This one, I asked a friend for a tampon, and she was like, uh, no. And the implication was that I was, by telling her that I needed a tampon, I was revealing that I was not a virgin. Like, that's Whoa. what she was. She was like, you use tampons? And I was like, yeah, don't you? And she's like, no. If you are a virgin, you should be too tight for tampons. That's what my mom says. I'm not allowed to use them. And it was... I, <laughs> Ooh, basic anatomy. Yeah, basic anatomy. Okay, so oh that's gosh. one. Okay. All right, next. Your husband will be able to tell if you aren't a virgin. I feel like so much of our teen years were obsessed with virginity. Yeah, that's like, an everywhere every, answer. Everywhere. Yes, that was everywhere. Especially, I got to thinking about this, romance novels. This was a big topic in romance novels was like losing virginity and stuff like that mm -hmm. I, or the things that I was reading back then that I really regret to be totally honest I should not have been reading that stuff it was bad all right the last one and maybe the one that was ultimately the most damaging to me that I'm still unraveling men give love to get sex and women give sex to get love oh yeah I heard that one too for sure. Yeah. In almost a prescriptive way, like yes. self-fulfilling prophecy way. Like it even does. if that might be a tendency of someone to reinforce it as if it's a given and not maybe something to be examined or changed. Yep, exactly. It was like, this is a fact of life. You have to protect yourself from boys because boys are going to lie to you and tell you they love you to get you to sleep with them. And you're going to want to... Give boys sex so that they will like you and fall in love with you. And it was like this given that it was just going to happen and we had to guard against it, but it was just our nature. And separating sex and love as if the two can't coexist oh, at I the know. same time. So like sex bad. is an expression of love apparently uh, doesn't exist. Yep. Yep. Oh. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Bleak. I think I heard all of those. 
the tampon one I think I was spared from just because I read the tampon box instructions because I think they talked about this. So it must be a common myth that people hear. Yeah, it must be. Maybe it's because people don't know their own anatomy so they can't figure out how tampons work. I think it's more that. And so we came up with like this urban legend around it. Um, But yeah, all of those I heard in various forms too. It's pretty discouraging, honestly, to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. When I think back to my childhood understanding about sex and sexuality, the big themes that come to mind are confusion and misinformation. You spoke to this. And then shame and secrecy. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Does that sound right? Yeah. And they're all related too because <laughs> shame and secrecy creates confusion and misinformation. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. When did you graduate high school? 2001. Okay. So I graduated in 2002. So we were in high school from the late 90s to the early 2000s. And there is so much really interesting analysis now. I don't know if you've seen any of this coming out about what it was like to be a girl growing up then. Mm. That intersection of purity culture and then that in-your-face sexual objectification of women and girls in the media. I'm thinking about the documentary Framing Britney Spears on Hulu. I think it was a New York Times documentary. Did you watch it? I haven't, but I've been following her tragic life for as long as I can remember. Yes, exactly. I feel like that documentary is a great encapsulation of what it was like to be a girl in 1999. And I was looking at a USA Today article about the film. And this is what they said when it came out in 2021. Culture held Spears up as an all-American girl, but had her walk a tight line. Look stunning, but embody the girl next door. Act sexy, but remain a virgin. Be articulate, but never opinionated. Mm. Oh, that is pretty much it. Like, there's a lot to unpack there, but that is what it felt like being a girl in that era. So at school, there was abstinence-only sex ed, which basically meant there was no sex ed. It was a chapter in our 10th grade health textbook. I think we learned the human life cycle. There was a page with really horrifying pictures of STDs. We were told the only way to protect ourselves was to not have sex, and that was that. Mm-hmm. And then at church, we were asked to sign our virginity away and wear purity rings, promising ourselves to God until marriage, and that was that. Right. And then on the flip side from the media, everything I learned about sexuality was about performing for men, how to dress, how to act to get attention from boys and men. But then once you got that attention, it was on you to stay chaste and keep your virginity. It was just so much confusion. Does any of that ring true for you? That's like a copy-paste, pretty much. (laughs) Fear visions. Yeah, Yeah, it really sums up a lot of my teen years. And one thing I've been thinking a lot about in recent years is how I was involved with competition dancing from the time I was five or six. Mm, So younger than my daughter now. That's a whole other layer. It is. And when I think about it, the story that I was told was – the studio I was part of, you know, didn't sexualize us. They did a good job of, like, keeping our costumes on the tamer side. And we didn't mm-hmm. do any explicit sexual moves. That being mm-hmm. said, it was still about <laughs> getting attention with our bodies. And yeah. usually at least some of the judges were adult men, definitely. Yeah. So maybe it was yeah. slightly more subtle, but it, it was reinforcing the same messages that you were describing about the Britney Spears documentary. Like, be noticed for your body, but not in that way, but like sort of a little bit that way, because you have to stand out and we want to win. So it's yep. very similar 
and sentiment. And I didn't really start unpacking that until a few years ago, again, because the messages I was told was that it wasn't sexualized, but it was like in a very subtle way. And not so subtle. And we're not like those other girls. Yes. There's a whole dose of that too. Yeah. Like the judgment of others. Totally. Mm -hmm. There was like a um, competitor dance studio that like we would talk crap about because because Mm -hmm. they were more open about being like a little bit more, I don't even know if sexual is the right word. Flirtatious maybe is a better word. Yeah. And there was definitely yeah. like a moral judgment. I never even thought about that. Oh, I'm going to have to unpack that some more. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yikes. But, you know, as you were talking to, I was thinking about how much the messaging about sexuality was reduced to this external facing thing. Like it was something mm-hmm. that was only talked about and understood in relation to the other. In our mm-hmm. case, a boy or a man. And it was performance, like how you chose mm-hmm. to dress or not, how you engaged in relationship or not. If you stood up, stood up and took a pledge and wore a ring or not. Yeah, yeah. It had nothing to do with your personal identity other than being called like a slut or a tease or a prude. It had nothing to do with your interior life or your desires or your own mm-hmm. pleasure apart from anybody else. There was no emphasis on understanding yourself or what you wanted. And it was treated as this simple transaction that was so unsophisticated yeah. and reductive and full of untruths. And there was so much emphasis on sexual avoidance and frankly, like not getting hurt, you know, yeah, for all the wrong reasons that make no sense and deter nobody. So mm-hmm. I'm thankful that there are folks changing this narrative for the better and who have been doing that work for a long time. That gives me some hope. Yeah, same. I'm very encouraged by how many and like the breadth of high quality sex education resources are available today, especially for young people. Some of our listeners might be familiar with the curriculum Our Whole Lives, which is just one example. That one was developed in partnership with the Unitarian Universalist Church and the United Church of Christ. When I was compiling resources back for Faith in Women several years ago, I got to attend an Our Whole Lives training And I was blown away by how inclusive and comprehensive that curriculum is. And it's not, it's by far not the only good curriculum out there, but it is one of the best, especially that comes from any kind of religious tradition. And the only one, to my knowledge, that is truly a lifelong learning resource from the time you are preschool all the way through older adults. Senior adult. Yeah. 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 It's amazing. It is amazing. And I say even with that one. There's really not enough of an emphasis on sexual pleasure. Like, I don't know if you agree yeah. with that. I don't know. I haven't spent as much time with the older uh, grade levels of that one, the senior high school and up. I did. I, my focus was a lot more on the K through six, I think, and then like seven through nine. Yeah. So I don't know how the older ones speak to pleasure. I just think that talking about this and talking with young people and anybody about their sexuality that encourages them to develop their own sense of self, that might actually dissuade people from engaging in potentially risky sexual behavior with somebody else. I totally agree. Right? If that's Mm -hmm. the goal is to avoid risky behavior, engage in things that are mutual and pleasurable and safe, like teaching people to claim their own sexual power and pleasure apart from anybody else is so important, especially Mm -hmm. for people who identify as girls or, or women, but yeah. really like all, yeah. all people. Um, how do we well, talk we about shame that? shame boys away from masturbation 
totally just as much as we shame girls away from it too I mean maybe not quite to the extent but it's the idea of pleasure being something that you have agency over without a partner that's not it's not bad or wrong or shameful like no it's good it feels like such a powerful idea yeah yeah it's good and you're entitled to your own pleasure and you can enjoy that all on your own I mean Research shows that orgasms are really good for you, <laughs> for health. Yes. They are. I mean, they're, yes. they really are good for you. Um, and exploring sexual pleasure just beyond, like, just your genitals and orgasm, too. Like, there's so right. much. It's such a rich, expansive conversation. So how do we talk about pleasure in a more expansive way? And I'll have more to say about that in a minute. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> and as we talk more about sex and sexuality – so I want to share something with our listeners that I wish I'd learned as a teen that I did not learn until I became more familiar with the Our Whole Lives curriculum, but it's called the Circles of Sexuality. This is part of the 7th through ninth grade curriculum. It's also part of many other sex education programs. It was developed by a researcher, I believe, um, an academic researcher, and so this is like a tested model. I did not learn anything like this growing up, and I'm curious to know if you did, Katie. No, absolutely not. (laughs) So the five circles of sexuality. First, you have sensuality. That is awareness and how you feel in your own body. So that's just like what you were talking about, things like pleasure, the need for touch, attraction, and fantasy, your own body image, stuff like that. Then you have intimacy, and that is connecting with other people. That includes sharing, being vulnerable. That's where love and care and affection would go. Emotional risk-taking, which I thought was interesting. Mm. Then you have the one that I think we most think about when we think about sex education is just health and reproduction. That is just straight up knowledge and facts about sexual health and how babies are made. And that also includes things like access to health care and contraception, understanding your own and other people's anatomy and just how things work, STI prevention, that kind of thing. Then there's sexual identity, which is understanding who you are as a sexual being, which is made up of gender identity, gender role, and your sexual orientation. And those three things are different. They get lumped together a lot, but those three things are different. And then there's sexualization. That is how we behave sexually to influence, manipulate, or control other people. And that's considered like the shadow side of sexuality. That could be everything from flirting and seduction to things like withholding sex all the way to harassment and assault. So I wish (laughs) I'd had this information growing up. It's just such a rich explanation that goes beyond straight sexual intercourse, have it or don't. That is what I understood sex to be as as a teenager and a young adult. So understanding myself as a sexual being and all the different facets of that is something I've only recently started exploring. So, Katie, you said this is new information for you. What comes up for you as you hear about this? I did not hear about these growing up, but I did hear them when I started working after graduate school, which was a little Mm, late to be learning this. But my first Mm -hmm. boss was a sexologist by training and a Unitarian minister. And the organization I worked for, yeah, advocated for comprehensive sexuality education in schools and faith communities. So that's where I was exposed to it. But like you, I wish... I had had them much earlier because I wished I'd understood the nuances Mm -hmm. and complexities involved with sexuality. And I was thinking like I was learning calculus and physics and reading obscure fiction. Right. 
And yet was treated as if I could not handle complexity about myself. Yep. It's Yep, that is such a good point. To me, it just shows how we prioritize the life of the intellectual mind over and against mm-hmm. our human bodies and the the experience of being embodied as something that's good as if the two have mm-hmm. nothing to do with each other. It's like just your mind, we're going to disconnect you from your body, not going to teach you anything about it. So messed up. Um, Mm -hmm. I think my thoughts are similar. You know, we focus a lot on health and reproduction and sexualization and like maybe some about intimacy and sexual identity, but definitely not enough. And as I said earlier, I think the sensuality piece is really what we shy away from the most because of the shame that comes with it of enjoying pleasurable experiences, whether we're on our own or with a partner or partners. Yeah. It's so funny you say that. I was thinking the same thing. Where I am now in my life has a lot to do with exploring sensuality. It's like you were saying earlier about how when we were first learning about sex, it's always framed in relation to the other, either a man or even God. You know, my sexuality had nothing to do with me. It was first about honoring God with modesty and virginity, Mm -hmm. and then later attracting a boyfriend, finding a husband. So here I am in my late 30s thinking about things like pleasure, all kinds of pleasure, for the first time. What do I like? How does my body respond to this food or this color or this sensation? How do I, this is a big one for me, how do I quiet my thinking brain and stay present for pleasure? Which is just a big challenge. And claiming sexual pleasure as something that belongs to me regardless of a partner I totally agree that we don't focus on that enough for young people. Pleasure without shame. It just feels like the key to so much. Like consent, for example, knowing what feels good to you helps inform what you want to consent to. Like how can we even broach consent with teens before we talk about pleasure, you know? And it's interesting. So I'm studying for a continuing education test on intuitive eating. And just last night, I was reading a chapter on how important it is to find pleasure in food and eating, especially when you've been cut off from your body with diet culture. And there's steps involved, like experimenting with foods to find out what you actually like, pausing in the middle of your meal to check in with yourself about how it tastes and how it feels, like taking some deep breaths before you sit down to a meal. And it just... A lot of that, (laughs) I was reading this book and thinking about sex too. Mm -hmm. And the word sensual comes up a lot in that part of the book. And I couldn't help but think about all the ways that like patriarchy and diet culture influence and reinforce each other, basically cutting us off from our inner wisdom and our physical bodies, you know? Completely. You are talking about intuitive eating reminded me of a book I just read called Ecstasy is Necessary, a Practical Guide by Barbara Corellis. It's really good. I recommend it. And she writes about how sex is energy, our life force energy, and it is expressed in every area of our lives, which I just love that. Mm. And at Mm -hmm. the beginning of the book, she asked people to share ecstatic experiences that they'd had that weren't about sex or orgasm. And people shared things like, real deep connection with a dear friend and the sensuous poetic words of Rumi and dancing all alone and naked in a pitch black room and giggle gasms and things like that. 
Oh my gosh, the word yes. giggle-gasm. Right? Oh. Like when you can't stop laughing, it's like, and it's, yes. it is an ecstatic experience. So, that is I mean, such a good feeling. Yeah, and there's so many, like people talk about art experiences they've had or being out in nature, just like a very expansive understanding of ecstasy. And so mm. much of the book is about becoming aware of what is happening in your body and in all the parts of your being when you are experiencing pleasure of any kind. And so she asked a bunch of people, what does an ecstatic experience feel like in your mind, your body, in your soul? Mm. And people said things like, I experienced complete and utter freedom. And I am rooted to the world and connected to everything. And I'm just there and nowhere else. And I'm like, this Mm. is the definition of presence. Like, of being still and knowing, of loving God. Yes. Like, yes. Yep. So it's such a good book. So to put it mildly, we do ourselves such a disservice when we compartmentalize sex and reduce it to this very particular set of physical experiences we have with a partner. You know, Mm -hmm. we just diminish Mm -hmm. its power. And maybe that's the point. (laughs) That's probably the point of, you know, just diminishing how powerful it truly is. And so we put God in a box, right? We define God in very absolute small terms. And we do the same thing with mm-hmm. our sexuality when it's so much more expansive and beautiful than the ways that we talk about it most of the time. You're so right. And you said this earlier, but I feel like the sex ed that I got growing up, especially in school, was focused really just on the reproduction part, mm-hmm. like the the outcome, I guess, of sex, not the experience of sex. There was nothing to do with that. Yeah. And, you know, and there was also a little on sexual health when it came to STIs and stuff, but there wasn't anything really like, and maybe this is changing the subject a little bit, but I was thinking about this. I didn't learn in school what to expect from a gynecological exam, Mm. you know, like really basic things like that. These are the different types of period products available, like just basics about my own body. And I'm thinking about how in elementary school, we spent a week on dental care. <laughs> a dentist came to talk to us. We learned the name of every tooth. Oh, my you know? goodness. Yeah. We practiced brushing our teeth. They gave away free toothbrushes. <laughs> Where was that for menstrual health, mm. you know? It's just really interesting to me. You can't convince me that shame and stigma aren't affecting how we're teaching this stuff to our young people, you know? So something else that I want to make sure we name, too, is that growing up, it was assumed that we were all straight. Was this your experience, too? Oh, yeah. Too? It was assumed we were all straight. We were all cissexual, meaning that we identified with the gender we were assigned at birth. Any talk about sex, even from well-meaning adults in my life anyway, at school, at church, it was all from the point of view of monogamous, one man, one woman, heterosexual, penis and vagina intercourse. Mm -hmm. If you weren't straight or you had questions about your gender identity, there was nothing for you. It was basically like you didn't exist. You didn't get any information, any validation, nothing. And so I don't know about you, Katie, but in my high school, thinking back, anybody who was gay or just not straight either hid it and came out later in adulthood or didn't hide it, but they were like considered socially outcast or they tried to be straight, 
because that was the default and they didn't have any tools or information for exploring their own sexuality. Like that was the choices that we had growing up. And I just want to talk about like what a disservice that this is for young people and really for everyone. And I'm not just talking about how harmful it is for gay kids and not straight kids because it definitely is, but it's also harmful for straight kids too. Like not giving anyone the opportunity to really explore their own sexual identity because it's just assumed that like it's given to us. Our sexual identity is given to us. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know. I think this is a big topic we might dig into deeper in a future episode. What do you think? Oh, yeah. And even the idea of coming out is is coming from an Mm -hmm. assumption of you are not hetero, right? Right. You're not straight. And like assumed until proven otherwise, rather than just allowing people to become who they're going to become and claim that identity if and when they're ready, if if they're ever ready. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And like gender identity also is so fluid and we don't have time to get into all of this. But yeah, we have a lot to to get into. And we're so far past the binary. I mean, like even when we were growing Mm -hmm. up, there was the binary of you are gay or you're straight. Maybe that was like there was at least some talk of that. Um, And that's just we're so beyond that, like in terms of the fluidity and expansiveness of sexuality, especially among Gen Z and younger, like our kids, I don't even know what generation they are, but it's going to be so different for them. So different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank goodness. And just mm-hmm. last, or no, this week I learned that in a lot of ancient civilizations, there was no word for blue. Did you know that? Really? Yeah. No. No. <laughs> like there wasn't a word for blue. And so there was no distinction made between green and blue at all. So it was like the color oh. didn't exist. Huh. And so I think there's a really similar thing that happens when we're not presented with words or frameworks around sexuality to determine if something Mm -hmm. even resonates with us personally because it's not named, right? So it's like, how do you know what that is? And if I had known there was more than being straight or gay or even bisexual, because I think the way bisexuality is talked about is also like kind of binary in the way that it's described, yep. which it's actually much yep. more expansive than that, that you could be like pansexual or demisexual or queer without needing to define what that means. I might have understood myself a lot better and a lot earlier. Yep. Same for sure. And I didn't learn what half of those words meant until the last few years, honestly. And what I knew even about being gay or queer I learned through a pretty homophobic lens Mm. that I'm still learning to undo. It was, it it wasn't an affirming way to learn about sexuality growing up. It was always like there was shame and secrecy and I don't know, judgment and all kinds of stuff. And you mentioned Gen Z. And one thing that just really comforts me is how much more access to information and like you said, language the generations after us have. We still have to be intentional because not all of the information is good. I'm thinking about, you know, TikTok, I guess. But it's still light years ahead of what our parents had and what we had. And maybe we can shift a little bit into talking about how we're thinking about parenting around this regard. So I don't know about you. I was really lucky. I had a fairly open relationship with my mom early on, I could generally ask her questions and expect to get real answers. And my friends even came to her with things they couldn't talk to their parents about Mm because they were too embarrassed or their parents didn't create, you know, that 
that open communication. And in a lot of ways, she was able to correct misinformation and provide context for things that I was hearing out in the world. And I'm really grateful for that, even if she totally, you know, couldn't totally counteract everything. And she was also one of my Girl Scout troop leaders, and she helped put together this, like, we had uh, a sleepover, and it was like our changing bodies. I want to say we were 12 or 13, and it was this whole day where <laughs> a series of experts came to talk about us, to or to talk to us and answer questions. And so, like, a, an OBGYN came, and we, like, learned about puberty and stuff and got to ask questions. And then a Mary Kay rep came. Did she do your colors? <laughs> Yeah, she did her <laughs> colors. <laughs> so it was still, you know, it was it was the nineties. This <laughs> What are but, you? What what season are you? Do you remember? Oh gosh, I don't I don't even remember. I remember uh learning how to wash my face. That was what she focused more on, mm-hmm. less about the makeup, although she did have makeup because that's what we wanted to do of when course. we were twelve, yeah. you know, <laughs> of course. But I remember learning how to wash my face and and you know, it's it it was all good. And I think that was really the only opportunity that I had to learn about this stuff with my peers in a fairly safe environment. So for things like body stuff, sexual health, I got a lot of that kind of support at home. But it was when I got older and started dating that things got a lot harder to talk about at mm-hmm. home, which, I mean, it makes sense because uh, that's the complicated stuff, right? relationships, emerging sexuality, things like that. And when I was hitting my middle school and high school years, I was thinking about this. My mom was the age I am now when I was in middle school in her late 30s and early 40s. And I'm just now figuring out my own relationship to my body and my sexuality. My mom didn't have anywhere near the resources we have now. So she was I mean, she was parenting in that mess of confusion and was just as affected by it as I was. And it's just really a bummer to think about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but <laughs> so I'm curious, how are you thinking about all of this when it comes to parenting? And what are what are you doing already? What do you plan to do differently maybe than how you were raised? Yeah, I was thinking about this in a very foundational way that we might not think about as sex ed specifically, but it's actually very core to it in terms of how Mm -hmm. we interact with our kid. And the first is just respect, (laughs) like respecting her, respecting my partner, respecting myself. We treat our kid as a full person. And I know that that sounds really basic, but I witness parents not talking to or treating their children as full human beings with valid points of views and desires and fears and opinions. Yep. It doesn't always happen. Mm -hmm. So we don't practice Mm -hmm. dominance of any kind in our house. Like there's no physical force or harm Mm -hmm. or yelling or threatening or anything that is a form of asserting power over our kid. And I think that that is absolutely fundamental to sexuality education and how you just interact with humans in the world. So we treat her as and talk with her as an equal member of our family. Um, And of course, we have appropriate boundaries. But we also communicate yeah. those too and like why we have the boundary there. You know, it's not just like yeah. we're doing this and we're not going to tell you why. So really just at the core, modeling respect for each other and ourselves in our daily actions because my hope is that mm-hmm. Sam is going to expect that 
from any kind of interaction or relationship she has in the future and that she will start from a place of self-respect. So oh, that's so good. Yeah, that just feels like <laughs> at the core, like the other stuff she can learn. But without that, like you cannot build the other stuff. Um, yeah. So that was like the first thing I really thought of. And then the other one is we've done a lot to make our house a shame free environment. And I know like we're not perfect about it, but that's been really, really big. And even thinking about this, I'm like, my kid might listen to this one day and I don't think I'm going to share yeah. like a whole lot about what that means. But just generally speaking, we don't shame anything having to do with our bodies yeah. in our house, or at least that's the goal. <laughs> Sometimes it's yeah. hard. <laughs> yeah. But we try. And, you know, related, we just model respectful, open communication with each other about everything in our lives. And we talk about our emotions and hold space for them. And teaching emotional intelligence is a priority for us. And also, Matt and I show a lot of affection around Sammy. So she sees us being loving toward each other. So that's very normal for her. So I know these practices aren't specific to sexuality, but like I said, they're just huge foundational things to build over time that I hope will serve her for the rest of her life. And of course, like we do other things too, but I just wanted to name those as things you might not think of. Yeah. I love that. I think you're right that we don't think about modeling respect, emotional intelligence. I know that we could be doing better at my house (laughs) with really building emotional intelligence. Um, But you're right that those are things that we don't necessarily think about. And a lot of it, too, is establishing a secure bond with your kid, mm-hmm. too, so that when they're older, they can come to you and know that they can safely ask questions and, ha- you know, show uh, fear and they can fail in front of you and make mistakes in front of you and that it, it's all, you know, part of the process Oh my gosh, yes. Can we raise children with secure attachment? That would be so huge for the world. Oh, that's, yeah, that's, a, that's a goal. <laughs> that's a good yeah. basic foundational one. <laughs> yeah. So since you covered a lot of that foundational stuff, I'll just add, you know, a couple of basic things that we do that's all part of undercutting shame that is different from how I was raised. I would say... I had to ask the questions first to get the information Mm. as a kid. I would get good answers, but I had to come up with the questions first. And I'm I'm trying something different with Avery. We just go ahead now and use proper names for body parts, both men and women's. I feel like that's a big part of just helping to normalize and reduce shame around body parts. We have books around the house now. He's four. But he's already interested about the human body. So there's a lot of like how the body works books around the house. And we treat the pages about the reproductive system exactly the same as the pages about the circulatory system or the muscle system, all of that. We don't treat it like it's a joke or like a secret. And if he ask a que- asks a question about something that throws me or if I don't know the answer right away, I don't make a big deal about it. Mm-hmm. And so far – All of that's been working pretty well. And that's, I would say, fairly different from how I grew up. And then something that is a little uncomfortable because it is just so different from how I was raised. But I just think this is so important. I don't assume that Avery is straight Mm. and I don't emphasize hetero marriage. Whenever we talk about the future, 
I say person you might fall in love with or want to be with. I don't say girl. I don't say woman. I don't say mommy, you know. And I tell him not everyone gets married and that's okay. And not everyone has children. And I think those things sound really basic, but I don't, I feel like that needs to be more explicitly communicated to a kid because if they're not seeing it a lot in the culture around, then how do they know, you know? Mm -hmm. So I have a couple of books that I'll recommend to folks that I got as part of the Our Whole Lives curriculum, but they're readily available. You can buy them anywhere. The first one is It's Not the Stork. Then there's one called It's So Amazing, and then another called It's Perfectly Normal. And they're a set, and they go from, like, kindergarten appropriate on up to, I think, like, late elementary school appropriate. And I plan to introduce those to him as he grows. We've looked together at It's Not the Stork, and it talks about anatomy, different ways babies are made, different types of families. It's very kindergarten level, and he hasn't been super interested in it yet, but I I feel like that's around the corner. Basically, the major thing that I learned in various trainings around sex ed, and you mentioned this earlier, is that it's just a lifelong conversation. The The idea that we have about sitting down with your kid at like 13 or 14 and having the talk, it's really outdated. There's not just one big talk where you cover everything and then you never revisit it again. And that is how most of, I would say most of my friends, when I bring this up, you know, or we end up talking about this kind of thing, that's, that was their experience. They got the talk, they got sat down by one of their parents and told don't have sex, or they got, you know, told use a condom, don't get anybody pregnant. Like it Mm -hmm. kind of varied, but that was the extent of it, you know? So it has to be this ongoing lifelong conversation that builds on all those foundations that you lay over time. And so as he grows, things that I plan and hope to be really intentional about are things like consent, sexual identity, intimacy, basically all those five circles of sexuality (laughs) that I never learned about. Yeah. There's going to be some learning alongside each other. I just know that that's how it's going to be. And I want to be open with him about that too, that like, hey, I'm still learning some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. So those are my hopes. You know, come back to me in 15 years. We'll (laughs) we'll compare notes, I guess. Oh my God, on the 22nd (laughs) year of (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, I love that. You know, the idea of our conversations need to be expansive just like sexuality is and it's already integrated into everything we are and do and so it would behoove us all to talk about it that way with young people and with ourselves too you know I think sexuality education is lifelong learning for sure or ought to be so obviously Mm -hmm. we just scratched the surface which is true of pretty Mm -hmm. much every episode so expect some more episodes about this very expansive topic in the future. And you know, if there's anything in particular you want to hear about, you can always send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com or you can send us a DM on Instagram at kindredspodcast. So looking forward to exploring taboo topics in 2023. Taboo. Taboo 2023. Oh, I, I love like it. it. <laughs> Talk with you then. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 